ANZ National King Charles III's coronation will take place this weekend on the 6th of May, Westminster Abbey. It'll begin at 11am UK time. He will be the 40th monarch crowned in the Abbey. Handel's Zadok the Priest will be played just before the anointing, as it has every coronation since 1727. King Charles and his wife Camilla will leave Buckingham Palace and be taken to Westminster Abbey in the Diamond Jubilee State Coach. With us, Dr Cindy McCreary, University of Sydney, historian focusing on monarchy and colonialism and co-editing a forthcoming Oxford University Press book on global royal families. Dr McCreary, welcome to the panel New Zealand. Thank you very much, Wallace. Nice to have you here. Now, what will the formal ceremony itself include? What are the key parts or moments? Yeah, so Wallace, I think it's really important to remember, first of all, that this is a religious ceremony. This is an Anglican service in one of the most important Anglican cathedrals in Great Britain, namely Westminster Abbey, which, as you've said, has been the site of coronations for British monarchs. This is the 40th British monarch to be crowned there. So it's an incredibly historic place, and it is a religious setting, and that's very important to remember. The ceremony itself is divided into multiple stages. We'll see that firstly, the king is uh, goes through a, a process of recognition where the Archbishop of Canterbury essentially introduces him as the monarch to the people. And essentially that's designed to, to just to show the people that this is not an imposter, this is the monarch that we've been expecting. The monarch then um, swears an oath uh, that basically means that he promises to rule in line with the law and in accordance with the will of Parliament. That's very important in Britain, given its its tricky constitutional history. Uh, prior to the Civil War in the 17th century, um, some kings did not rule in accordance with Parliament. And so 60, since 1688, the coronation oath is ensured that all new monarchs do agree to rule uh, according to the will of Parliament. But the king also swears that he will rule as a faithful Protestant. And again, that is a reference to British, Britain's complex complex religious history uh, and really, again, a guarantee that the monarch must rule in accordance with the Church of England, of which he, of course, is also the symbolic head. Um, following that, there's the anointing. Now, this is the most sacred aspect of the ceremony, right. and it's the one part of the service that we probably won't see. Uh, in fact, there's a new anointing screen made of a uh, needlework screen that will shield the king from public view. And in this moment, the Archbishop of Canterbury will anoint the king with holy oil on his head, his chest and his arms. And that's to signify the king's role as a Christian, but also as head of the Anglican Church. That's Gosh. followed by the presentation <laughs> of regalia, um, the investiture, the crowning. Then there's a, a, a smaller, shorter service of crowning of the Queen, of Camilla. There's um, the um, Pledge of Allegiance, which the Archbishop of Canterbury invites uh, all people to uh, partake in. Um, there's the communion and then there's the, the recession and the um, return procession to Buckingham Palace. What an extraordinary ceremony and indeed rich in symbolism. Stay there, Cindy. Let's bring our panel and then we'll come back to you. Moata, questions, thoughts? What do you reckon? <laughs> it's um, a, quite a ceremony, isn't it? It, it really is. And um, any time anyone complains in this country about there being a cut of care given before a meeting, I just, you know... <laughs> Oh yes, but, I was going to raise is, that. But all later, of this yeah. is is totally yeah. fine. Um, I, I guess, like I, 
I was, you know, I grew up in this country, like many people, um, encouraged to really care about the members of the royal family and what they did and what they wore and who they were married to. And um, Just over the course of the last couple of decades, I've been working through that and now I feel like I'm at a point where I'm giving my position, my, myself permission to really not care about any of this. Mm. <laughs> and it's very liberating. And I just want to assure everybody that even though it feels like it's not optional, this is totally optional. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> and on that, Cindy, what sort of appetite is there for the British Crown, both here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Australia, indeed the UK? Look, I, I certainly can't comment on New Zealand. That's, of course, for you folks to mm. talk about. But I can say in Australia, I think there's a range of views. And I think that, for example, there's been a lot of discussion in the Australian press recently about the, what is an innovation in coronation ceremonies, namely this Pledge of Allegiance that the Archbishop of Canterbury will invite all people, both in the Abbey but beyond, to affirm. And, and many people said that's ridiculous. Um, our Prime Minister, who is a, known as a lifelong Republican, like your own Prime Minister, um, you know, that's a ridiculous position. Uh, our Prime Minister is, is acting hypocritically in saying that he will take the pledge. Other people have pointed out, however, that Australia, like New Zealand, is still a constitutional monarchy. The British monarch are still, is still our head of state. So constitutionally, I think our prime minister is correct in saying that just as prime ministers and members of parliament in Australia pledge allegiance to the monarch at the beginning of every uh, opening session of parliament in Australia, um, this is another of those occasions um, and that there is still, uh, we are still a constitutional monarchy. We are not yet, in Australia at least, ready to take the step to becoming a republic, yeah. or at least that's not clear clear cut. Um, and I think that there are a range of views in Britain as well, as I would imagine there are in New Zealand. Indeed. Stephen Jacoby. Well, yes, look, I, um, I, I'm really interested in the, uh, the, the, the coronation. I think it's a, a profound moment in history. It's about, it's, it's, it's about the British monarch, as Dr. McHugh has said, but it's also about the New Zealand monarch. In fact, our monarch is the New Zealand monarch, the king of New Zealand, who happens to be the same person as the king of England. That is right, isn't it, Dr. McCreary? Yeah, that's right. And you're quite right. So uh, we also uh, here in Australia uh, we need to understand that Charles is the king of Australia. That, that's that's correct. That's, um, of course, that's right. I mean, of course, the, your position is even more complex because, of course, of the king movement in New Zealand and the Maori monarchy, um, which I cannot, of course, speak on. That's beyond my area of, of knowledge. But that's another complication as well, of course. Now, uh, um, well, we have King Ituhatia, who's actually at uh, uh, at the coronation in London. But Wallace, can I just add? Yeah, I just sure. think it's really great that Dr. McCrea brought out the religious nature of this event. And what, one thing that disturbs me, and I'd be interested to know if this is happening in Australia, is that um, there's a tendency to overlook all of this, uh, whereby mm. we have on, we're seeing bizarre sort of um, uh, uh, sets that are going to be used for TV presentations of this whole event with people holding teacups and corgis and, and, and British flags and goodness knows what. But this is a deeply serious symbolic moment. And I think we should try to take it a little more seriously. Cindy? Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that is often overlooked. Um, you know, Australia, we, we talk about us sometimes being thinking we're almost a virtual republic. And I think the same might be said about we, we kind of think we're virtually a secular nation, a secular society. Well, this is one moment, I think, of a wake up, perhaps for many people that, as you say, this is a deeply religious ceremony. 
Um, and let's be clear that it's not just a religious ceremony. Um, it's a Protestant ceremony. And one of the things that the king is doing is promising to uphold the Protestant church. Um, and of course, uh, by extension, that is indicating that in Britain today, the monarch cannot be, for example, a Roman Catholic. Um, these are very profound things. And I agree with you that we need to be aware of what's going on and aware of our constitution and our religious heritage. It's really nice to have you on the program, Dr. McCurry. Thank you for joining us on the panel. Yes, it's uh, Dr. McCurry from Sydney University who is uh, co-editing a forthcoming volume uh, for Oxford University Press on global royal families. Is there nothing, uh, Moata, nothing at all about the pomp and ceremony that sort of ignites your passion, that you'll make some popcorn, you'll watch it, you get carried away by the the symbolism, the rites, the music, Zadok the priest? I have to say, I was very amused when I saw the big stone that they brought from Scotland, the Stone of Destiny. and I saw a picture of it being carried on a sort of litter by some very serious-looking people. And it's just, you're carrying a piece of rock, which for some reason, and there's history behind it, I know that, has to be there when the king is crowned because it's a bit spooky, magical, maybe. There's a prophecy. I, like, I am... I, I am amused by that kind of like weirdness. Yeah. There's a lot of weirdness about it. Yes, yes, And I understand yes, I wanting to see the spectacle. Yeah. Now, uh, for those who do want to uh, keep in touch with the coronation, RNZ Concert will broadcast the uh, pre-coronation c- celebratory concert live from Westminster Abbey from 7.50pm. And RNZ National will broadcast the coronation ceremony live from 9.50pm, while RNZ will also live blog the event as it happens. 18 past four. Uh, Moata Tamaira with me, also Stephen Jacoby. And thank you so much for all your responses regarding um, a conversation with a stranger. I thought no one would text me. There have been many that soon. But to this, I wanted to touch on this. A thousand students and teachers have been isolating after a case of a highly infectious disease was detected detected, excuse me, at Auckland High School. All are considered close contacts. And last night, a second person was infected with the disease. New Zealand's childhood immunisation rates are at some of the lowest ever levels, sparking fears of an outbreak of measles, as it's an incredibly infectious, lethal disease, says our next guest, who is Dr Owen Sinclair, Māori paediatrician, also National Immunisation Task Force Chairman. Uh, Dr Sinclair, uh, kia ora. Kia ora, how are you? Very well, Dr Sinclair, and thanks for being with us on the panel. I wanted to address this because um, there is some concern here, but how much of a concern is this? Yeah, I think you touched on it there. So, So measles is one of the great killers that man has ever um, come up against. Um, it, it is incredibly infectious um, with an R value of 18, um, whereas COVID had an R value of about 2. And wow. if, uh, yeah, and if it gets into communities that are unvaccinated, um, uh, it can kill large numbers of people. And I think the most recent time that happened was in Samoa, who has a population of 200,000, and they had 83 deaths. And so the... The fatality rate that Samoa had, so it was 
for every um, for every thousand children who were infected uh, by um, by measles, fourteen died. Um, and it's pretty serious. It's quite hard to think of another disease that's quite that lethal. Um, in the US, they have rates between uh, one and three of a mortality of one and three uh, per person per one thousand. Um, so we're really worried here. This is this is something. We never really wanted to happen, and when I was a doctor, measles was something of the past. But now it's come. Right. I was training, but now it's come back. Unfortunately, Gosh. yeah. Measles was something of the past when you were training, and has, so here's the deal. Here's the backdrop: eighty-two percent of New Zealand's two-year-olds uh, were fully vac- vaccinated. That's a drop from ninety-two percent at the end of 2017. We're going backwards. We are going backwards, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. I think, um, I, just to put it in context, New Zealand's never actually been particularly well at immunising, uh, done very well at immunising its children. And when we started counting it in 2009, we ranked very lowly on global scales. Um, we then did some, some interventions to try and, sorry about that, some interventions to try and increase our immunisation rates that were moderately successful at later time points. Um, but it, what, what, what it did was it waited for people to miss their immunisations and then we caught up. And that's not quite how you prevent disease. You need to immunise people on time. And I think the current system has recognised that. And um, as a chair of the task force, mm. uh, we made 50 more four separate recommendations, recognising that the system was heavily flawed and it's always been heavily flawed. The other thing that's really affected, so with that system whereby people were missed, and then we had a system to catch them up, um, there was sort of a secondary group of immunisers that achieved that. And when COVID arrived, all of those people were diverted uh, to do the adult uh, immunisation programme. So that's the reason for the very, the large reason for the very recent drop. But it comes on a background of, 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 um, of a very poor, poorly functioning system uh, for children. So, so the maximum we ever got, for example, in six months... Uh, was only about 70%, and it was oh. much lower than that for Māori. It was sort of 60%. Gosh. And in some parts of the country at the moment, the six-month immunisation rates for Māori is lower, 35%. So, All right, yeah. Owen, we've got a panel with us. They can respond, and then you can um, come back in. Uh, Moata. Sure. Hi. Um, do you think that uh, part of the reason that... Um, people are not getting their children vaccinated or even vaccinated themselves is that there's this idea that measles is just sort of like you have a rash and that, that there's not a general understanding of actually what a serious is, um, mm. disease it is. Yeah, I think there is some truth in that. I think that um, because these diseases, were, we've never met the beast, um, we've never met the sort of the, the seriousness of the disease, that, that people have become more laissez-faire in their approach about it. But I think New Zealanders do want to immunise their children. If you ask them, and there's been recent studies, 92% of, of New Zealanders are quite happy to get their children immunised. But I think there is something truth in what you say. There's not the urgency. And if you, um, I talked to my uh, wife's grandmother, and she told me the horror and fear she had two children in the polio epidemic years. Mm-hmm. Every, every winter, how scared they were of it. And I think that it's sort of part of immunisation success. We no longer have that fear. But I think people do generally want to do it, and there's, but there's some real systemic barriers to many groups getting their immunisation. Stephen. I have to put my hand oh, up sorry, um, and admit that um, I just recently discovered I'm not fully vaccinated. Really? Um, yeah. Like I dug out my Plunkett book and I think I only had right. one 
vaccination as a child, so I actually have to follow up. Um, and uh, apparently it is free for people born after 1969, so yes. I just need to make an appointment. Okay, Stephen. Yes, um, uh, um, Owen, thank you very much for those perspectives. Just wondering, you know, we often say that we've eradicated certain diseases. Uh, are, is it possible really to eradicate diseases? Uh, or do we always have to be um, constantly, um, you know, vaccinating and, and preventing? Yeah, well, we, we, we've only really ever been able to eradicate one from planet Earth, and that was smallpox. Um, and because we achieved that, there was great hope that we could eradicate other diseases. Um, we've got extremely close with polio, but there's still pockets of it. Um, but um, for several reasons, measles, we actually got close to measles at one stage, and then there was a bit of a hiccup with an extremely fraudulent doctor who said that it was associated with autism, um, and that sort of set us that back. But no, it is it is imminently possible to vaccinate these diseases, and it's a bit. I think it's a failure of the modern public health system that we haven't been able to do it. And I think partly it's because what I said before that we had them at such low levels that they were absent in our society. We thought they were gone, um, but they never really were. So yeah. Very good to have you on, I, Dr. Sinclair. Kia ora. Thank you very much. By the way, before you, before you go, just symptoms, yeah. symptoms to look out for. Yeah, so it starts off like a cold, um, like any other cold. And then you sort of, uh, but children with measles uh, tend to be sicker. They develop a high fever. The most famous thing is a rash. You get this florid rash all over your body and conjunctivitis, and you're really miserable. Um, the ticker with measles, the reason that it, one of the reasons it's so dangerous it's unlike COVID when you weren't infected until you got the fever. For measles, you're infected five days before you have any symptom. So that's why, one of the reasons why it's, oh. so, it's such an effective organism. But it generally starts like a cold, and it's, that makes it really tricky for us in the medical world is that you can't just look at a kid who walks in who's got an early stages of fever and, and decide what they've got. So it's hard, but yeah. Very good, Dr. Sylvia Kiora. Thank you very much for your time there. Uh, really important stuff. Um, so symptoms, uh, fever, cough, runny nose, sore and watery eyes, followed by a blotchy rash, and you're considered immune if you've had two MMR vaccine doses after 12 months of age, you've had measles before, or you were born before 1969. Check with your GP uh, if you are unsure of those. Really impressed about the range of, I thought we'd get zero texts, run off our feet. Why have we stopped talking to strangers, asks Steve Chamberlain in The Guardian. Efficient urban design, attention-grabbing screens and isolating headphones all mean we're rapidly losing the art and joy of spontaneous encounters, he says. When was the last time you struck up a completely random encounter at an art gallery? What's your favourite picture? Or at a train station? Hello, I see your train's been delayed. What's your favourite film? Or Walking the Dog. With us now is Karen, who's been listening in. Hi, Karen. Are you there, Karen, from Pickton? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I Loud and clear. Wonderful stuff, Karen. So you talked to a stranger, in fact, just today. I did, yes. I was taking my dog for a walk along the beach. What um, happened? Well, I, I live in Waikawa, and uh, it was a <laughs> it was a calm afternoon. Uh, the sea was lapping gently on the shore, and there, w- there was no wind. 
And as I was walking along with my dog, um, there was a gentleman there um, and he was putting his boat in the water and we just struck up a conversation. I just said, hello, how are you? And how's it going? And he started uh, his conversation. So it it was very, uh, very um, beautiful, really. There was just... uh, Mm. The calm sea, there was a stingray plat splashing in the water just next to us. Uh, the air was still, and a dog was wandering along the beach, um, sniffing everything. Oh, Karen, this is, a, <laughs> this is a Pulitzer Prize winning poem. Yeah, 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 yeah. I should write this down. Mawata. <laughs> well, he gave me his name, and um, um, he spoke about a tour he was like, about to undertake because his wife passed away. I think about two years ago, and um, uh, yeah, and he was about to launch his boat to um, his dinghy to get on his boat to do some repairs and so. Oh, so, so. what a day, Karen! And I have his phone number. <laughs> can you can you can you can you can you do a follow up with the panel? <laughs> if you have a cup of tea with a gentleman, get in touch with us. I'd like to hear more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lovely, Karen. Thank you for that. Isn't that wonderful, Mwata? I'm very happy for Karen and her new boat friend. Yeah. That, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Uh, quite a few. Um, my last meeting with a stranger was about an hour ago when I arrived at the Z station and was unable to use the tyre pressure pump. And so I asked a stranger to help me, and then we discovered that the tyre pressure pump itself was faulty. So I thanked the man, and I thanked his wife separately for giving him to me to help. Lol. Another one here. My partner and I had the most wonderful conversation with a stranger over dinner last night. He was a PhD student from Sicily studying mathematical physics. We talked brutalist art earthquakes, auroras, and general relativity. So have we lost the art in talking to a stranger, Stephen? Oh, well, I don't think we've really lost the art of talking to to strangers. I mean, I think it can sometimes be more difficult in cities where Mm. people are busy, focused on what they're needing to do, battling with the traffic, or should I say the traffic codes uh, here in Auckland. Uh, I can understand that uh, is a dynamic, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I have conversations with strangers all the time. And, um, do you? Uh, I, I, yeah, I do. I look, uh, church on Sunday, you never know who's going to walk through that door True. Uh, around, the morning tea, around the morning tea table. Sam I mean, but there are many other places. A there are lovely, many other places. Yeah. A lovely thing happened today. A reader of my Substack reached out after my last post. We met for the first time to discuss stuff we had in common together, and it was very cool. Moata? A strange encounter. I can't recall the last one I've had. I know, not a pleasant one. Anyway, Do you see? yeah, uh, and and Stephen's right. You know, living in a city, you just there's a certain guardedness, a shield that you sort of put up when, and particularly as a woman as well, you you really don't know. You know, is this person yeah. going to be weird? Yes, 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 the weirdness <laughs> um, factor now. Although not all bright, is it? Oh, I've got one here from Gay in the South Island. As a newcomer to a small New Zealand city, I've been here four years and almost no one acknowledges my smile, my voice or my cheerful greeting. There are thousands of us women in this city with short grey or white hair, so perhaps we have caused overwhelm. It's very isolating and sad for me at least, says Gay. 
Oh, gosh. I'm very sorry to hear that, Gay. Um, but that, that is very sad indeed, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one thing I've always felt about New Zealanders is that we are more willing to say g'day as yeah. you're walking along. But I, I think it is different in cities. Wallace, I'm thinking you really should think about moving to Hawke's Bay because you'll find a lot of people to talk to down there. I love the city of Auckland, the great super city.